The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Looking with you at a short topical series that I plan to have end next week, Lord willing, with just six items of emphasis as we've tried to deal with the question of what is the Reformed faith or what is a Reformed church. And I told you we could easily stretch this many, many more distinctives, but I was trying to hit the main mountain peaks of that subject. And uh, today, for the fifth of those, I look at the second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, particularly wanting to bring you the the message of just two verses, 13 and 14, but I'll start reading at 8 to give better context there. Listen to God's word from Paul to Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher and which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow then the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard, the good deposit entrusted to you. This is God's Word. I dare say many of you have at some time been in a church where a pastor made a declaration. It might have been a church of a fairly independent sort of mind or framework. And the pastor was trying to make a point that theirs was a church not dependent on human thinking, and so he held up his Bible at some point and said, folks, this book, the Holy Scripture and this alone, is our only creed. We do not follow human creeds. We look to no formulas of faith written by the hands of mere men. This is our creed. Now, if someone said that, I would be highly sympathetic with that person, I would certainly be a brother to that person in his allegiance to the Word of God, for I too, and I know that most of you are evangelical believers, those who put the authority of Scripture very high. That, in fact, was the first of the distinctives that we talked about in this very short six-week series. So the man is, is not saying something in his affirmation that I have a problem with, but in his moderate denial 
He is saying that he doesn't want to follow or think that it would be right to follow any kind of faith affirmations written by the hands of men. And there we would differ with him. Not because we would ever put those affirmations on a plane with or a pedestal beside the Bible. They do not belong there. But they are strictly of a secondary value. That is, the creeds and confessions that we use and learn from. Hear that word, please. Secondary value. As they help us to interpret and better understand the doctrine that the Bible teaches. Of course the Bible is preeminent as an authority. It has no rival. It's breathed out by God. And yet God has gifted people in church history who have forged some very wonderful and useful summaries in human words that memorably capture key points of teaching about the Bible. And if you just want to be ignorant of those or or push them aside or somehow think they're unworthy, you are the poorer for that because you're missing some wonderful resources. I don't think probably that too many of you know this, that within two miles of this sanctuary, exactly speaking, at 600 Eden Road, Eden Road and Crooked Oak, there's a small office park some of you will be familiar with. You may not at all know that in that office park, this summer, an organization relocated itself from Philadelphia, where it began. In fact, the late Dr. James Boyce was the one who began this organization, And it now is here, making its home in Lancaster. The organization is called the Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals. Its office manager worships with us every week. And I saw them finally put a sign up after they had moved in for a while. I guess it took the the sign man a while to get there. They were unidentified for a little while. But now they have the words up over the office, facing the parking lot of other, you know, attorney's office, insurance. I don't know what all is there. And I see this sign when I go there, Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals. I know what that means. And I can say, I am a confessing evangelical. But when I go there, I think to myself, I wonder what the lawyer across the way or the the accountant client that comes to see, have his taxes done over here. See this sign, confessing evangelical. What are they, confessing their sins to everybody or... What is this? People probably say, confessing? I don't know what this is about. Well, they're saying we are evangelicals who primarily value the Scripture as preeminent authority, but in a secondary way, we value the rich tradition of the confessions of the church, particularly those that arose in the early centuries in the medieval time and then on into the Reformation and the Puritan period. I'm going to mention several of them this morning very briefly, only bouncing off them really as I mentioned. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'll say a word about each of those this morning, but it's certainly not my purpose nor my ability in the short time I have to introduce each of those in any comprehensive way. But I want you to see these as things that characterize churches of a Reformation heritage. And we would say that that man who declares the Bible itself is my only creed and I don't want any part of a human creed, I think he's speaking out of a kind of fear and his fear, which does have something behind it, is 
that maybe the tail could end up wagging the dog. That a secondary source, something written by men, not of the same level of God-inspired authority as the Bible, could end up imposing itself on the Bible and, and in, in a sense, almost replacing the Bible. Now, we would acknowledge that that is a justifiable fear, and it could happen. And maybe it has happened. But if you keep in view what a creed or a confession is, that it is simply a human restatement of the doctrines of Scripture which must be compared for its conformity to the Word, and if it does not conform, be rejected, then you're not in trouble. Because we say that any man-made creed is liable to errors or inadequacies. I love the, the paragraph in the Westminster Confession where it says that about itself. I'm quoting a paraphrase, and I don't have the words exactly in front of me, but it basically says, every church council and every tradition of man is liable to error, pointing out that that makes them different from the Word of God itself. And it was talking about themselves and what they were doing. Even we, these men we call the Westminster Divines, ministers who met for years in the 17th century to work on that and hammer that out, they're saying, we're fallible. We will make errors. And so don't expect what we say to be perfect. The Word is perfect. The Word is inerrant. The question is, this person who says, here's my only creed, why is he unwilling to write down a condensation, a, a concise digest of what he believes? For after all, if you went to join that church as folks joined the church here today, and you said, well, pastor, before I join the church, what do you believe? Well, they'd probably hand you a couple sheets of paper with six, eight, ten paragraphs, and they'd go through, you know, doctrine of God, man, sin, salvation, so on, second coming of Christ, and they'd spell out some distinction. So they have a creed. In fact, the churches that say the Bible's our only creed usually have those sheets of paper. Well, we take a membership class like you saw today, and we give every member the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. It's a book. And people say, wow, you Presbyterians are really into doctrine. You've got a book. The church I just came from only had two sheets of paper. And we say, well, that's because doctrine is very involved. And wise, gifted people have been gifted by the Lord to write these things down. So if we want to know, well, what is justification? We could go and find out in some paragraphs with scriptural references, or what is sanctification, or what should I think about the return of Christ, or the doctrine of the church, or the church and state, or any of these things. I grew up, I don't know, I think I knew there was an Apostles' Creed. I must have in some vague way knew it, but I don't think I had ever said the Apostles' Creed in a worship service until I was 17 years old, chasing this particular very attractive young lady sitting down in the front row. She's still young uh, because I was very interested in her and showed up at her Presbyterian church, had me say the Apostles' Creed for the first time. I had to read the book. I didn't know it by memory. And I don't remember that I, I had some, you know, great revelation the first time I said it, but I do know that I had an overall reaction as weeks went on and I worshiped in that place that, wow, this is kind of mind-expanding. 
Someone has written down these cardinal doctrines of the faith. It goes way, way back. As I learned, I looked it up and found out the history a little bit, the Apostles' Creed, and I found out people have been saying this for hundreds of years. The Christians across the centuries could unite and say, I believe this. Christians in the Andes Mountains in Peru could say this today. Christians in Anchorage, Alaska could say it. Christians in the Ivory Coast could say it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so on. And I thought, what a, what a wonderful horizon-expanding thing this is to realize that I'm part of a large thing in this Christian faith. My challenge to you is if you feel you have to say, well, the Bible and the Bible alone, don't give me any of that human mumbo-jumbo. The Bible's my creed. Well, I want to just say, why are you not willing to write down or partake of the things that have been written down since you must have some private digest of things you consider most important in faith? That, that preacher does. I hope he's not a cultist who's saying, my Bible and the way I interpret it to you today in this hour, in this moment, that's it. That's the only creed. That's how cults start. And there's a need to say to that person, you need to put your doctrine to the test of what other believers think as well. Well, as a first point today, I first want to go to this 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14 to present to you the brief argument that I believe this, the, there is an apostolic call to summarize sound doctrine. That's what I hear Paul calling for here summaries of sound doctrine to be held by the leaders of the church and taught and promulgated. In 2 Timothy, we know Paul was near the end of his life. This is one of the last of his letters. It's a prison letter. He was saying to Timothy, look, I'm kind of turning, in a few words, I'm turning things over to you and others like you, young man. You need to step up. Timothy had been a little bit timid. In some ways, Paul kept trying to bolster him and say, Be bold, have courage, don't let them despise your youth, and so on. And here he is talking about the doctrine that had him in prison. He's not ashamed of it, and there's no reason for Timothy to be ashamed of him. He's there because he taught the things that God wanted him to teach. He affirms that the gospel, you see, is the gift of God's grace transmitted to men by the Holy Spirit. And he's saying in so many words, Timothy... I've given you the doctrine that God gave to me and that he also gave, of course, through Peter and the other apostles and that was handed down from Christ himself. And I stress to you verses 13 and 14 where he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. And then he says, guard the good deposit and trust it to you. You may think I'm making a lot of a couple sentences there, but... I think the, the, the nub of it is in the word pattern, which in King James's form, a Greek word is hypotyposis, you want that, uh, that can be understood several different ways. It can be like an outline. If you were going to write an essay in school, your teacher says make an outline. You know, get your main subject heads that's going to organize it and then write the, the lecture or the, the essay. Or it could be thought of as like a sketch, perhaps, that an architect might make of a building. Does it have a Georgian facade, or is it early colonial, or very ultra-modern? What's the sketch that's going to guide the construction? Uh, 
It, it can mean a prototype or a pattern, something that serves as a mold for that which comes along, other things being cast from it. Prototype, I think, is a good word, although none of the English translations seem to use that. They like pattern or form. You know, if you were the engineering head of Apple computers and uh, you were head of the division that made the iPhone, I'm sure there are, I have no idea how many iPhones there are in this room right now. I have one a wonderful device, amazing how you can tap into so many sources of information and communication and not, I mean, making phone calls is almost the least of all the things that you, that you do with it. And, you know, I just marvel. I, I have no understanding of electrical engineering. I marvel at that little palm-sized thing. And I think, what engineering had to go on to fit into that, the components that, that can do all these marvels? How many apps do they have? What are that, half a million or something apps that you could, different programs that you can check into? You certainly don't make an iPhone by saying, well, I think we'll put one of these in and, and maybe one of these and, well, maybe we'll move that over here this time. No. You've got a prototype, a design that is very specific, very concrete, and every one of those ten thousands of phones that are made have to conform. Paul is saying much the same thing. The gospel of Christ, he's saying, is not a subjective opinion. It's not just some fuzzy conjecture, you know, uh, a celebrity on the, the Leno show saying, well, I think, you know, and well, you know, they'll talk to the celebrity and say, well, what are, you, what are your spiritual opinions? And they're oh, oh, what's the celebrity going to say about spiritual things? We'll hang on his every word. He knows nothing about the subject, but we'll listen to him because he's a celebrity. Well, I think, well, my view is, no, none of that. Paul is saying God has revealed a gospel of his grace out of his own purpose and grace, he said there in, in verse 9, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. There's a good one-sentence compact description of the gospel, of election and salvation. This is from God. And I've taught you this, and I've taught it to you in detail. Timothy, learn it. Understand it. You're going to be a leader you have to be able to define it. It's a good deposit for you to guard, and it's a prototype for the preaching and teaching that the church must do, and you must do, and you must teach other elders to do it. You could find, I, I'm going to cut some of these out just for time here, but I, I could give you a half a dozen just in the, what we call the pastoral epistles, that is Timothy and Thessalonians. Uh, I'll just give you a couple. First Timothy 1.10 Paul says, uh, he warns against, quote, whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, there's doctrine that's sound, that adheres to the truth of God, and doctrine that doesn't. You need to know the difference. 1 Timothy 6.3, he mentions the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that is in accord with godliness. Once again, Timothy, you're a leader. I want you to carry forward from your relationship with me, that doctrine which will reveal Christ and his gracious salvation. So I see here, certainly very strongly suggested and argued for, a, the, the need of concise doctrinal teaching in the church in the ages to come beyond the time of the apostles. 
Now, it was a while before there were written summations, although we do know of a few very early ones, and I just time lacks to go into all those little side trails. They're interesting. If you want to know these things, you can learn about them. But there were some early, early writings, uh, formulas of things that people were taught for learning, for, for example, if they were going to profess their faith or be baptized, little summaries that some of them had. But later we got the classic ones. A friend of mine, historian Carl Truman, I think, has stated something clear that we need to understand. He said, Carl said, Christians are not divided between those who have creeds versus those who do not. He said, no, the division is between those who have publicly acknowledged and written forms of their theology, a creed or a confession, and those who kind of refuse to write it down or submit it to public scrutiny. His exact quote is that these others are people with, uh, whose unwritten creed is impoverished, unwritten, and therefore not open to public scrutiny or testing by the Scriptures. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone who stands and says, the Bible alone is my creed, is a dishonest person. But I think it's a semi-dangerous posture because you're kind of kidding yourself if you really think that you don't have some summation or more concise form of doctrine. Why not look to the ages and to the great leaders of the church who in the 4th or the 17th century have hammered these things out and debated with some of the very best godly minds that existed to put things down so that you're not left alone with your Bible to say, oh, I know in my heart that this passage must mean this. Well, maybe it doesn't mean anything like that if you're unwilling to learn from the people of mature and balanced teaching who came before you. Secondly, then, I just want to suggest what are some of these fine biblical and historic creeds, and this is a limited list. There more could be added, but I'm just going to mention four very quickly. The Apostles' Creed, of course, you know. We don't say it every Sunday, but we say it many Sundays. Most of you, many of you who worship with us on any continuing basis, don't need to open the front cover of the book, you know it. You can say it. In fact, there's a little bit of danger in that because they can be just words that sort of drip out that you don't even engage your brain and think about what you're saying. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and so on. That creed is wonderful. You know, it's not called the Apostles' Creed because apostles actually wrote it. It wasn't written by Peter or Matthew or John. It was named that because it is to represent the faith of the apostles. Those who composed it in the fourth century primarily were saying, this is what we know the apostles handed on to us. The first final forms of it exist in the late 300s. 389 is a year when... Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, basically seemed to bring it forth, and and here was a form of it that was used after that for a long time. So it's not first century, it's actually fourth century. You know, one of the things I love, and I noticed it today, and it comes from different parts of the sanctuary, when we say the Apostles' Creed, I'm in a different place than you are. You know, you're hearing the voices immediately around you. I've got voices coming at me from all different directions. And I, I love, I listen. I'm not just saying the creed, I'm listening to you. I'm listening to the rumble of your voices. 
And you know what I will often hear is a child's voice, often a little girl. And I'm not pointing at anybody, but I did hear it this morning. You know, because little girls' voices are pitched higher, I guess, is the reason. And they kind of stick out, and if they're sitting closer to me. And I'll hear this little child saying, you know, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church. And I think, wow, the next generation is getting it. We're passing it on. This 2,000-year-old faith is being spoken by the young voices among us. And that's something that maybe I'm weird, but that thrills me. I love that, to think the faith is being passed. Those of you who have worshipped here for years know that at least through my ministry here, I have always called for the Nicene Creed, second one to mention, to be used in the month of December. We'll be using it in just a couple weeks for, the, for that month. Why that? Here's another old one. In fact, if anything, a little bit older than the Apostles' Creed that comes out of the struggles to understand the Trinity and the deity of Christ that happened at places like the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., one of the great church councils of all time, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Those are two of the biggest gatherings of wise theologians that happened in the ancient church. And out of them came these understandings, and they were hammered out by argumentation by people who believed other things. And, and the Orthodox men had to say, no, no, that's not what the Scripture says. It says this. And they came out with these formulas that led to a statement like the Nicene Creed that so beautifully, wonderfully penetrates the truth of God in Christ. Where do you get phrasing like begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God. It's wonderful. And it penetrates as far as we can into that deep mystery of Christ becoming a man. We'll be using the Nicene Creed, but it's one that emphasizes the Trinity in in great detail. Less well-known to many of you is one we do use from time to time, and I am determined we're going to make more use of it. That's the Heidelberg Catechism, a German catechism, although it originated before Germany, was called Germany. In 1563, it was written in what was called the Palatinate. Frederick III was the emperor who said, we want a question and answer format, a catechism. That's what a catechism is. You ask a question and you give the answer. Children and families can learn this, memorize it. He said, we need this for families to learn the faith. A very talented individual came forward who was a theologian and also a a bit of a literary man. His name was Zacharias Ursinus. I don't know if we have any Ursinus College graduates among us, but you may know there's an Ursinus College in Pennsylvania, and that's who it's named for. This man who contributed to Heidelberg Catechism, a beautiful, pastoral, warm, devotional catechism. If you, if you don't identify with it at all and you've worshipped with us for a year or more, you probably recognize some of the first question and answer that we do use. What is your only comfort in life or death? My only comfort is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful statement. We're going to use that catechism more. There are more questions and answers that we ought to explore. Then, of course, there's the great Westminster Confession of Faith and its two catechisms, larger and shorter. How do I even begin to speak much of that? I'm already over time and I know it. 
But uh, 1643 was the beginning when great men of God gathered in Westminster Abbey. They met weekly. They met in committees. They divided up subject matter, combed the scriptures, debated, wrote, rewrote, rewrote, and rewrote. You know, lots of things that committees do are kind of a mess. I, I always remember the, the, the uh, statement that, uh, how does it go? A, a giraffe is a horse designed by a committee. If you've served on a lot of committees, you can sympathize. Well, that isn't what happened at Westminster. They came out with the fullest, longest, most thought-provoking, scripture-soaked statement of faith that has ever been produced. And it has been the official statement that Presbyterian ministers and elders subscribe to from that day forward. Much more can be said about that. We study it in our adult classes. Let me just quickly close with some benefits of using a creed or a confession. I've only skimmed the surface of this topic. Most obvious one is learning. Learning doctrine. People are biblically illiterate in our age. People that go to churches every week are biblically illiterate. And the creeds and confessions help us a great deal. Now, there's, there's a flaw with my analogy here that I'm going to use, and I, I know what it is, so, but I'm going to use it anyway. If, if you were ever in high school, you remember whatever grades, let's say 10th grade, you were supposed to read Macbeth, right? You didn't read Macbeth. But the test on Macbeth is the day after tomorrow. What are you going to do? I know what my generation did. We went down to the pharmacy bookstore and bought Cliff's Notes, Macbeth, Condensation, few pages, description of the plot, main characters, what was going on, what was the theme, what was it all about. You could probably at least get a C if you were reasonably intelligent and you used Cliff's Notes. Now, your teacher wouldn't be happy because they wanted you to read and revel in the language of Shakespeare in Macbeth, just as we want you to read the scripture. But Cliff's Notes sure helps. And creeds can do that too outlining for us some of the best important points that we need to emphasize, especially the catechisms, wonderful teaching devices. Families should be using the shorter catechism. They don't have to learn the whole thing. Fathers and mothers, pick out some of the questions and answers and teach them to your children on important subjects. Secondly, a creed or catechism becomes a benchmark or a measurement for the orthodoxy of the church, particularly when it comes to the leaders of the church. Now, our men, our elders, our teaching elders in particular, I'm a teaching elder in the Presbyterian church. We have ruling elders. Teaching elders are are tested rigorously. Of course we have to know the scripture. Of course we have to know theology. But we're also tested in the Westminster Confession and asked a vow, as are our ruling elders, asked Do you subscribe to the doctrine of that confession of faith as representing the doctrine taught in the Scripture? And if you ever come to a point where you do not subscribe to that doctrine, will you make it known? That's a solemn vow. In other words, I have subscribed to a measuring rod of my orthodoxy. And any of you that might say, oh my goodness, you know, Rogers is out to lunch on justification, come and challenge Come and see. We'll look at the confessions. We'll look at the scripture. And you need to challenge if you think your leaders don't meet the test in doctrine. 
that we have subscribed that we would. It holds us accountable. Lastly, this morning, I would say that the wonderful use of confessions and creeds is in worship, of course. When we can say these things together, the Scripture tells us to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That doesn't just mean the basic confession, Jesus is Lord. That's the great thing you have to confess, of course. But there are so many ways to confess that as we state the fuller doctrines that flow from our basic faith. And we do it in the context of worship, hearing not just the loud sound that a congregation of 700 makes, not just the little child's voice that sticks out. That's great. There's something else I hear. And I'll admit I don't actually hear it, but I hear it. That's the echoes of Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther and John Calvin and Augustine and Paul and Timothy and all the great saints of the ages saying the same thing as we say. God is glorified when his church is unified in its doctrine. We need regular reminders of truths that are the prototype, the concise statement of what sound biblical faith in Christ is. What is that deposit of truth that we are to guard? We say it together. And when we say it together, creeds and confessions have a way of ensuring that for the church, the main thing remains the main thing. Our Father, I thank you for the wonderful gift you gave your church, not just in your scripture, which of course stands preeminent, but in the way we're able to understand your word better by the creeds and confessions that wise minds have given us. Lord, help us to be those who are well formed in truth so that we won't be blown all over the place by every little wind that comes along. Help us to be a worshiping people, strong in the truth of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.